Hi, I'm Faye Harrison. I'm a senior associate in the data protection team here at Bristow's. Um, and joining me today is Rosalie Hayes, who's also an associate in the data protection team here. So today's podcast is all about expanding on some of the articles that we wrote in our data protection top 10 publication, um, which is available on our website. It's an annual publication. So do please check it out when you get a chance. Today, we're going to be talking about the advancement in visual tech. Um, and we're going to start with talking about deep fake videos. So deep fakes are something that we hear about a lot in the news, and it's not always entirely clear what this term refers to. So Rosalie, what do we mean when we talk about deep fakes? So deep fakes are a really broad term that's been applied to quite a lot of different things. But generally, it means a photo, a video or an audio clip which has been digitally manipulated to show something that didn't actually happen. So that's fake. They come in lots of different forms and are created in lots of different ways, from the very simple to the very sophisticated. Okay, so why exactly are people talking about deep fakes at the moment? It seems like people have quite a lot of concerns. Yeah, that's right. And it's definitely something that's been in the public eye recently. In short, um, it's because of the evolution of deep fakes. They're now really convincing and pretty flexible. So you can essentially manipulate a video or a sound clip of someone and make them say whatever you want, make them do whatever you want, as you can imagine is a bit harder, but that technology is improving as well. This obviously could be pretty funny, pretty entertaining, but it could also have some very dangerous applications from making a politician appear to give an inflammatory speech to showing a celebrity doing something personally embarrassing and damaging to their reputation. These aren't applications that are in the future either. They're happening at the moment and people are believing them now. There are tons of examples, but for an incredibly simplistic one, just look at the Democratic candidate race for this year's US election. A video of one of the debates was released, which apparently showed Mike Bloomberg finishing a speech and all the other candidates just paused and just completely dumbstruck uh, in a really awkward way. But that video was completely edited. There was no pause. The candidates just responded as normal. So that is just looking at it from a political angle as well. In our data protection top 10 publication, I go into some of the other reasons people are worried about deep fakes like issues for law enforcement if we can't properly ascertain whether or not video evidence is real. One of the most amazing things about deepfakes is also one of the most concerning things about them. As I was saying before, they're so adaptable um, and we're not sure where they might spring up next, let alone if we'll be able to identify them when we do. Yeah, I mean, it certainly sounds less than ideal. So are people doing anything in reaction to these sort of threats? They are, but just like deepfakes themselves, it's all a bit complicated. Starting with the law, which I guess we should, uh, as this is a law podcast, theoretically this can be of some use. Depending on the type of deepfake and the relevant jurisdiction, creating and distributing them might involve breach of copyright, uh, defamation and or harassment. And then using data protection law, data subjects can invoke their rights of objection, their right to erasure, uh, so they could use those rights to get them taken down. And they could also argue breaches of various data protection principles too. 
But the thing is that even if these legal remedies exist in theory, enforcing them isn't straightforward. First, you've got the potential for varying approaches to deepfake enforcement across different jurisdictions, which, as we know, is like always and especially problematic on the internet. You've then got issues around the scope of enforcement because not everyone has a definition of what constitutes a deepfake, and there is debate about that. So, you know, the Mike Bloomberg video I mentioned earlier, that's one good example of this because some people were like, what are you talking about? It's just a slowed down video. It's just a joke. On a similar line of thought, people disagree about whether deep fakes are always bad. So another really interesting example from this year was how one of the parties in a political election in Delhi used deep fake technology to translate one of their campaign videos and give their leader a wider reach by making it look like he was speaking English when he wasn't. So, I mean, is that dangerous? Is it an unfair advantage or is it just widening access to democracy? And is the question of whether it's dangerous integral at all to whether it should be removed? These are all questions that are kind of really important to grapple with um, to make any kind of progress with deepfake enforcement. And then alongside all of that, there's the practicality of taking them down. Um, so you've got many questions about the life ability, willingness and capability of intermediaries, so all the kind of standard internet platforms that we know, plus the fact that much of the damage is immediate. Even if a deepfake is removed, it could have already had a massive impact before then. Sure, it all sounds very complicated and, and again not really ideal. So what stage would you say we're at now? Well, at the start of this year, Twitter and Facebook both took action against deepfakes by announcing measures and policy changes to take down manipulated content that meet specified criteria. And um, Microsoft are doing a similar thing. So that's actually quite a big step forward um, and quite a formal step forward as well. Alongside that, we're seeing increased awareness from the public and big tech, increased efforts to educate people about this kind of technology and about being alert to deepfakes, as well as new technology solutions to authenticate undocted images. So we're not there with a solution yet. It's true, um, but neither are deepfakes ruining our society at this stage. Most agree that the most crucial thing to do is not to completely panic. We need to find the balance between enforcement and freedom of expression so that society has sufficient trust in the media they consume, so that governments are not given a free pass to censor the whole internet, and so that an individual is able to upload a random iPhone clip of an important event. And that can be believed without having to go through some sort of lengthy and expensive verification process. It's not easy. Um, and I don't think one solution will work in isolation. But deepfakes are getting more and more clever. So the clear thing is that we'll have to get clever too. In fact, we know that on the other end, AI technology is being developed that can recognize faces in apps such as Instagram, TikTok, as well as more serious and potentially scary uses such as surveillance. And this also raises data protection issues, as you might imagine. Um, so, Faye, can facial recognition technology be used for surveillance? OK, so if it's used in a transparent way, then facial recognition technology, or FRT as it's often referred to, can potentially be used lawfully for surveillance purposes. Now, in our data protection top 10 publication, we reported on the 
recent case of Bridges, which involved the South Wales Police Force. Um, and this case related to the use of FRT at public events to identify individuals on police watch lists. All sounds very legitimate. Um, and at first instance, this use of FRT was held to be lawful. This was on the basis that there was a clear legal framework in place for the use of this technology by the police. And it was also important that the associated processing of personal data was held to be proportionate. There was also a clear focus on the GDPR transparency and data minimisation requirements in the decision. And notably in this case, there'd been clear notices of the processing activity that was taking place. Um, the police had used social media, they'd used large printed signs um, in the vicinity, as well as handing out cards to members of the public. However, since we wrote our top 10 publication, this decision's actually been appealed um, and the Court of Appeal did in fact allow the appeal in part. The court didn't conclude that the use of FRT by the police was unlawful in principle. However, it was held in this case that the use of this technology had not been in accordance with the law. The Court of Appeal held that a specific legal framework needs to be in place to govern the use of FRT and that relevant codes of practice, police policies um, that were used in this case were actually too vague for that purpose. Notably it was held however that if the relevant guidance documents had been tightened up there'd be no barrier in principle to police forces using FRT for the purposes that they were used in this case. So it's not a complete no and interestingly, the Court of Appeal did agree with the first instance decision that the use of FRT had been proportionate and that the police force had been sufficiently transparent in their use of the technology. So there's some good guidance there on the kind of things you need to be doing to make sure that it's transparent enough. And it's probably worth noting that this decision was very much based on the specific role of the police as a public authority. But some of the points discussed might also be relevant to organisations in the private sector who are looking to make use of this type of technology. Elsewhere in Europe, there have been instances of FRT surveillance use being held lawful. Um, and one example of this that we've come across is that the Danish Data Protection Authority approved the use of FRT to identify fans who'd been banned from a football stadium. Um, and the basis of this decision was that this conferred an essential public benefit um, for those attending the stadium. Again, in this case, there was a clear focus on the principles of data minimization, so not collecting more data than you need, and also transparency, being clear about what you're doing. And also in this case, the security measures that have been taken were important. Wow, that's super interesting. So what are the cases where facial recognition technology can't be used then? OK, so whilst we've obviously seen some examples of where it can be really useful to protect the public, the data protection authorities have probably somewhat unsurprisingly been less receptive to the use of FRT in schools. So sadly, I think teachers are going to have to be a bit more inventive if they want to reduce the time that they take every day um, in monitoring people attendance, controlling access to school, that kind of thing. Both the French and the Swedish data protection authorities have found that this type of use of facial recognition technology is highly intrusive and in breach of numerous GDPR principles. Um, and in the cases that we've seen, there's again been a clear focus on proportionality and data minimization. 
again, only collecting the data that's needed. Um, I think it was also quite important in these particular cases that the issues related to the collection of personal data of children, um, because this data attracts special protections under the GDPR. Just coming back to the UK um, for the moment, one of the most controversial uses of FRT that we've seen over the last year was the sharing of data between the owners of the expansive London King's Cross site um, that I'm sure everybody's listened to is, is aware of um, and the Metropolitan Police, which made headlines in October 2019. The exposure and subsequent scrapping of this scheme prompted widespread debate um, about the balance between privacy and public safety when deploying FRT technologies. Um, so in this particular case, it was evident that the police did have good intentions in providing King's Cross with images of offenders to then be used with the site's FRT system. However, the problem was that this ultimately led to the covert processing of the biometric data of thousands of members of the public without a notice or appropriate safeguards being in place. Obviously not ideal. And in this instance, um, the Information Commissioner, Liz Denham, commented that she was, and I quote, deeply concerned about the growing use of facial recognition technology in public spaces. So clearly there's a lot of concern about this particular issue at the moment. And in fact, the ICO subsequently issued an opinion on the use of live facial recognition technology by law enforcement in public places. So I guess putting all of this together, I think what we can take away is that there is some potential for using facial recognition technology lawfully for surveillance purposes. But if organisations want to do this, they're going to need to be very, very careful to comply strictly with the GDPR privacy principles and obviously the relevant guidance, particularly that coming from the ICO. The principles that seem to be a key focus in this area, as I've mentioned, are those of transparency, proportionality and data minimisation. Um, and obviously security is also key. The other thing that's also worth mentioning is that in line with ICO guidelines, it's very important to complete a clear and comprehensive DPIA for this type of use of personal data and, of course, special categories of personal data. Um, and this should be done before any kind of facial recognition technology is implemented. And the DPIA should always be kept under a kind of continuous review to make sure that it's still valid. Thank you very much, Faye. Um, that was all super interesting. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please do check out our other episodes, which cover a whole host of topics of data protection things to watch out for in 2020. Um, don't forget to download the publication of our data protection top 10 if you haven't already. And of course, for any actual legal advice on any of these topics and more, please do feel free to get in touch with us or any other member of the Bristow's data protection team. Thank you again for listening. Bye.